John 4, verses 46 to 54. I'll read for us, and then I'll pray, and then we will jump in. Starting in verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had to say to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, who else can we go to? Who else can we go to? We need your healing. We need your mercy. Open up our eyes to see you more clearly, our ears to hear your word this morning. Open up our hearts to receive this word. In your name we pray. Amen. In 1998, a movie came out about a man. Now, this, this man was kind of your everyday average man. He lived in a nice suburb. He had a nice marriage. He had some good friends. He had a good relationship with his boss. He sold insurance. Everything seemed to be just right. But the only thing is, is as we learn, as the movie goes on, we begin to realize that this man's name is Truman. And Truman is living in a reality show, but the only problem is Truman doesn't realize he's living in a reality show. Every other person around him is an actor. His wife is an actress. His best friend that he has known since childhood is an actor. Every single person around him. And he is living in the most elaborate set that has ever been known. It is this giant dome where the director can even control the weather. But the cracks and the illusion begin to show. And Truman begins to realize that something is a little off. And so he begins to notice more and more things are wrong. And so you get, we watch as the cast is desperately trying to reconvince Truman that everything is fine, everything's normal, but he begins to notice more and more that something is wrong. And eventually this leads him to discover the truth that everything he has ever known, his life, his friends, his family is all a lie. And the illusion is shattered, and so too is he. And I would argue that our culture and our world functions a lot like the Truman Show. We all live in this big dome where we try and convince ourselves that with enough money, with enough wealth and status and power, everything is going to be all right. We may hear rumors that success and money can't buy happiness, 
but we would like to be the first person to try it out and see for ourselves. But like Truman, we begin to see glimpses in the cracks of the illusion. Something about this way of life just doesn't fit. We think we are in control. But when the illusion is shattered, so too are we. Regardless of where we are in life, regardless of our status, our wealth, our power, we are a knife's edge away from desperation. And that is why our text is so powerful this morning. For those of us that are parents, we know that feeling, watching our child be sick. And desperately, we look on to them and we can't do anything about it. Maybe you've experienced a loved one who is slowly fading away and no amount of money, no amount of connections can heal them. We are powerless to fix our deepest pain or worry. So we sit in our foxhole, don't we? We get in the foxhole, we throw up a prayer, a Hail Mary attempt to God, we pray, we throw it up in the air and see what will happen. Will He remove this pain? Will He remove this worry? Where is God in those moments? When we are in the foxhole, what if I told you, even in that place, when our life is falling apart, even when everything is slipping through our fingers, when we are shattered, God is at work. Do you believe that? Truly, even in that place, God is at work. We're going to see that this morning as we go through our text. We're going to to look at this text through three main scenes. First, a desperate father. Second, the response of Jesus. And finally, a long walk home. A desperate father, the response of Jesus, and a long walk home. First, look with me at a desperate father. Look with me at verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So a couple things here. First, we see that Jesus has come back to Cana, the very place where he had done the miracle, where he had turned the water into wine, if you remember. And think about how Jesus must have become a legend in that area. Jesus had come and he completely saved the day for this really important moment. These two families in the community were in desperate need. This was going to be a very shameful event, and Jesus had completely removed the shame of that instance. He had He had fixed the problem for them. The dilemma was fixed. And here Jesus is back. And not a moment too soon, because here is an official. He lives about 18 to 20 miles away, but he makes this journey because he hears that this man is nearby. Jesus was back. This word here for official can be translated nobleman or king's man or king's official. Well, we can probably uh, guess from this what commentators say is that he probably worked in Herod's court. If you remember Herod, right before the crucifixion, that was who Jesus would go and speak to. And do you remember his reasoning for wanting to see Jesus? It's because he wanted to see a miracle from Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus do something cool that he would never forget. And so here this man, as this official, is working in Herod's court. And he is a man of great power, influence, and wealth. He has status. He has access to the rich and the powerful. You know, from worldly standards, he has everything you would ever want, don't you think? He's got power, he's got access, he's got wealth, he's got friends in high places. But he's got one major problem, and one life-changing problem. 
His son is ill. And you have to think at this point, he's probably tried everything to heal his son. He's used all of his wealth to bring in the best doctors. He's used his connections to get the best recommendations. He's used his influence to get his son to the front of the line, to get the appointment the next day. And what's happening? His son is slowly fading away. The life is slowly draining from his face. And now news gets to him from his servants. This man, Jesus, is nearby. And he has that glimmer of hope. And so in verse 47, we see the desperation of the Father on full display. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Notice who goes to Jesus. This is an important man. He probably could have sent a servant. He could have sent his wife. Who goes? He goes. This is so important. This is worthy of his time that he would travel this long journey to go and see Jesus. And if your child is at the point of death, where do you want to be at that time? Where would you want to be? You would want to be at their bedside, wouldn't you? You'd want to be sitting by them to, to get every last laugh, to get every last moment with them. Every last moment at their bedside. But he will not give up hope. And so he goes. And depending on your translation here, you might have that he asked Jesus. Some translations have he begged him. Other, he implored him. This is an ongoing word here, and it, it probably beg is probably the best translation. He is begging. This is a continuous begging that he is doing here. This is a persistent request. And you kind of get this image that's almost a bit ridiculous. You've got this official, wealthy, important individual, and here he is in, in front of all these crowds at the feet of Jesus, begging him, asking him over and over and over, Jesus, heal my son. Jesus, heal my son. Jesus. He's humiliating himself, but he doesn't care. Why would he stoop so low and shame himself like this? Because he is desperate. He's desperate. There's a movie that I think captures this really well. It's this movie uh, from Denzel. It's an older movie called John Q. Um, but it tells the journey of a father who is desperately watching his son die. We find out that Denzel's son has a heart condition and their insurance won't cover it. So he needs a heart transplant. So he actually goes and he, he holds an entire ER hostage. And he's hoping that somehow he'll find a doctor who'll perform the operation. And at one point in the film, he even offers up his own heart. That he would die to save his son. And I remember when I first saw that movie, I was like, that's a bit ridiculous. No one would ever you know, go hold an ER hostage. Like, come on, Hollywood. And then I had Wilson. And I was like, maybe this makes a little bit more sense. And I'm sure some of us can relate. We would do a lot seeing our child die and we're desperate in that place. Maybe holding an ER hostage isn't as ridiculous as I first thought. And I experienced that personally. I felt that desperation as when we were going to the doctor and we found out that we had had a placental tear. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office just desperate. My life was shattered. Our little son, was he going to make it to delivery? And I just remember just praying over and over to God, just please heal him. Please, please heal the placental tear that we that we found out about. And amazingly, God did heal that. It's one of the coolest things that's ever happened in my life. Jesus did heal that placental tear. 
But I know that place, that feeling of desperation, of thinking that death is a real possibility for this child that's growing in a womb. This is what this father is experiencing in this moment. And he is desperately clinging on to hope. What can we learn from him in this place? Well, first we have to acknowledge that he is courageous. It is courageous to cling on to hope. To not let the public shame or humiliation keep you from reaching out to Jesus. Think of how he could have easily given in to pessimism or cynicism. How easily would it have been for him to just give up completely, say, my son's going to die, to just go off and leave. To maybe turn to drink or some other vice, to take that pain and try and numb it. Instead, where does he go? He goes to the feet of Jesus the only one who can heal his son. He goes to the right place. He is acting courageously. It makes us think of Jacob as he clung on to the angel of the Lord. He didn't really know what was going on, but he clung on through the night, hoping for blessing. And here this father is clinging on to hope desperately. Jesus is his last hope. There's a quote from John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, and he says this about his desperation for Jesus. He said, I was driven to such straits that I must of necessity go to Jesus. And if he had met me with a drawn sword in his hand, I would have sooner have thrown myself upon the edge of his sword than have gone away from him. For I knew him to be my last hope. Jesus was his last hope. And so too this official here. Jesus is his last hope. Have you given up on hope in your life? Have you given up? What if what they say about Jesus is true? What if he truly is the great healer? What if he really is the great restorer? Have you retreated to pessimism or cynicism instead of Jesus? I'm pleading with you today to run to him, to cling to him, to fall at his feet and to beg for mercy because he is the great healer. He is the great restorer. And we'll see that as we continue through our text. Notice how Jesus responds to the desperation of this father. Look at the response of Jesus. Look at verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. When you first read that, did you think to yourself, what in the world? Jesus, did you never take pastoral counseling in seminary? (laughs) What kind of a response is that? It seems harsh. It seems tone deaf. It seems like Jesus is kicking this man while he's down. One major thing to note that is really helpful is that the you in this passage is really a y'all. Both of the you's are really y'all's. So our English translators need to be a little more southern in some of their translations, okay? It should read, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe, which is a little bit more helpful, is it not? Okay, and one commentator put it this way, Christ's words here are mercifully surgical. He referred not only to the noblemen, but also the Galileans whose tendency the noblemen represented. Jesus' words would lift the man to new levels of faith, and likewise, anyone else who would listen and respond. I like that. Mercifully surgical. 
It's precise. It's like a scalpel, right? When a doctor cuts you, he's not cutting you to hurt you. He's cutting you to heal you. And that is what Jesus' words are. It's, it seems harsh, but he is cutting to heal. Jesus is speaking to those who are around him who are treating him like a traveling circus. He's come into town and people are like, hey, let's get the popcorn ready. Come on. The next episode of Jesus Heals Some Guy is on. I want to see what happens. How's this going to play out? They wanted to see something memorable. They wanted to see something they couldn't explain. They wanted sensationalism and miracles and signs. But what were they missing? They were missing the person. They were missing Jesus. Jesus wanted the man and the people to go beyond the signs and the miracles. He wanted them to trust Him. To trust in His Word. He wanted them to know who He was. Not just some miracle worker, but Lord and Savior. That's who Jesus is. How does the official respond to these words? Look at verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He doesn't just walk off defeated, but here he pleads again with Jesus. And it's even more intimate than we read in English. That word there for child really means dear little one. It's like saying, come heal my Bubba. Come, here, come heal my Wilson. It's intimate. It's so personal. Jesus is ple- uh, uh, the Father is pleading with Jesus here. Jesus responds to him. Notice Jesus' response to those words. Go, your son will live. This man came to him with nothing but a cry for mercy, and Jesus responds with five words. And in those five words, his life is forever changed. Just with a word. How amazing is that? Just with his words, he heals the son. Jesus didn't need to go there and be physically present. He didn't need to go walk the 18 to 20 miles to go hold the son and rub something on him first and breathe into him. He just spoke from 20 miles away and the son is healed. How amazing is that? What do you think was running through the head of the father in this moment? Are you sure? Is my little Bubba really healed? Can that be true? Did my desperate Hail Mary foxhole prayer, did this actually work? And how does he respond? Look at the the man's response. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. How amazing is that? Belief. Faith is starting. He asked for a sign And he didn't get any. He didn't get any proof. He didn't have to argue. He didn't have to plead any further. Jesus answered his prayer and he believed. I heard Timothy Keller use an illustration about this, which he stole from some other pastors. So I think it's fair game if it's been through a couple pastors, right? And it comes to me. But I wanted to share this with you. In the late 19th century, there was a famous French tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. And Charles was famous for tightrope walking over one place. Niagara Falls. And the crazy thing is he didn't just do this once. He did this hundreds of times. This is crazy. And the crazy thing about him is that each time he did it, he wanted to do it in a more ridiculous way. He he kept escalating how he did it. 
So I wanted to share some highlights of how he went over Niagara Falls with you. Once he crossed it blindfolded. One time he crossed it while pushing a wheelbarrow full of weight, like hundreds of pounds. Once he crossed it with his manager on his back. That's a manager who really trusts him, right? Once he crossed it with a table and chairs and got to the center and got on the chair and put it on one leg in the center of the tightrope. And this one's my favorite. Once he carried a stove on his back, got to the center, made a fire, and cooked an omelet in the center of the tightrope, and then lowered the omelet to a boat that was going underneath him. It's insane. <laughs> and the story goes that once he had crossed across with a wheelbarrow filled with weight, and he got to the end, and then he asked the crowd, would anyone like to jump up here and get into the wheelbarrow and cross with me to the other side? And surprisingly, no one volunteered. <laughs> no one volunteered. But they had just seen him cross with all this weight, right? They knew that he had the ability to do it. But it was a whole nother thing to climb into the wheelbarrow, is it not? To entrust your life to this man. And so too it is with the Christian faith. It is one thing to have an intellectual assent about Jesus. It is a whole nother thing to get into the wheelbarrow of Jesus. To trust him. To put your life in his hands. To trust his words. As one pastor put it, it's not taking down a dusty jar named faith for an hour a week and bringing it down and opening it and then closing it and putting it back up on the shelf. It is so much more than that. Have you climbed into the wheelbarrow? Have you entrusted your life to him? Living as if your very life depends on the words of Jesus as if they are true. Put yourselves in the Father's shoes in this story. What would you have done with Jesus' words? Would you have left and believed him? What would you have thought when he said those five words to you? Would you have climbed into the wheelbarrow? Let us see. The story doesn't end here. This is the amazing thing. Look with me at the long walk home that this man is about to take, starting in verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. What is the longest walk that you have ever taken in your life? How about walking 18 to 20 miles, not knowing whether your son was dead or not? But all you had was the words of Jesus. From Capernaum to Cana. We are not given many details of this journey, but what was this walk like for him? Do you think he was anxious the whole way? Do you think he ate anything the whole time? Do you think he had doubts? Did he have fears? What was it like when he finally saw that servant coming to him? What about when he saw the servant's face? And what he saw was a smile. And the words of his servant yelling at him, your son has been healed, master. Your son has been healed. And notice the servant's words. When did this take place? 
yesterday. That means that a whole day has taken place. He's been sitting in this place of dangerous hope, of courageous belief. And then the servant comes and everything is assured. Everything is right. There was no doubting it now. He had already believed the words of Jesus, but now he had endured the crucible. It was that walk home. And now something even greater is going to happen. What could be even greater than your son being healed from certain death? What could be even greater than that? An entire family being spiritually healed. Not just physically, an entire family being brought back from spiritual death. A whole family that are now planted in Herod's court. How amazing is the plan of God to hear in this secular, evil, wicked king in his very own court is a family of Christians all because of the words of Jesus. God is at work. How big is your God? He is amazing. He is amazing. We think about this walk that this man endured. It made me think of a a show that me and Leanne used to love to watch, um, and it was, maybe you've seen it, it's called Blown Away. It's a kind of a competition-like show, but it, it, it shows these amazing artists that work with glass as a medium, and if you've watched it all, it's, you know, each week someone's getting eliminated, and so there's high pressure stakes, but they're working for hours on end with this glass, and if you know anything about glass blowing, there's a lot of heat involved, right? There's a furnace, and they use blow torches. And they heat up this glass and they blow into it in a certain way to make these different shapes. And it's a really intense show because they'll be working for hours and just sweating onto the glass as they're working onto it. And then one wrong strike or one wrong move and hours of work just falls on the ground and is shattered. It's devastating. But they have this skill to work with this brutal medium of glass. Something so fragile, but they use time and effort and heat to make these beautiful works of art that they can make in just hours. It's amazing. But I think that image is beautiful because it shows us something about how our Father works. How does He mature us? How does He grow our faith? In the fires of the furnace, does He not? Just as the official's faith was strengthened with each step on that 18 to 20 mile journey, so too in our lives, our faith, is matured with each step in the path as the Father's hammer hammers us and strengthens us and refines us and sharpens us. Dan Allender put it in his book, The Healing Path, which is a wonderful book. He says this, Why would God take His beloved to the desert in order to restore her? Because only there can He reveal to her the magnitude of His love. The healing path must pass through the desert, or else our healing will be the product of our own will and wisdom. It is in the silence of the desert that we hear our dependence on noise. It is in the poverty of the desert that we see clearly our attachments to the trinkets and baubles we cling to for security and pleasure. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul clinging out in thirst and hunger. In the desert, we trust God or we die. That is what God uses to teach us His love for us. The magnitude of His love. In the desert, we cling to Jesus. We cry out to Him in mercy, Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, help me to believe Your promises that You are good. My faith is shaky at best. Lord, I, I reach out my hand to You 
And what does God do? He clings on to us. Even when we don't think like we can continue with another step in the desert, we look to Jesus and we cling to Him. As the author of Hebrews tells us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How can we do this? Because a greater father lost his son. How can we do this? Because the son and the father deliberately lost one another, facing the agony, the pain, the shame on our behalf. They did this, defeating sin and death on the cross, so that now we have this hope that one day there will never again be a parent that has to bury their child. There will never again be a day when we have to look at our loved ones and watch them slowly fading away knowing we cannot do anything about that. Christians, sin and death have been defeated on the cross and that is our eternal hope. No matter the circumstance that we are walking through, no matter the desert, we have that hope. Amen? Amen. Jesus is good. Run to Him. Fall at his feet. Plead for mercy and hear his words and believe. Let us pray. Jesus, our our faith is feeble. It is shaky. But we reach out to you crying for mercy like this official. Lord, heal us. Hold on tight to us as you have promised that you will. Walk us through the desert. We need you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 We respond now with a time of offering, so let me pray for our offering. Jesus, thank you so much for the many gifts that you have given us. Everything good we have is from you, Lord. Help us to steward it wisely, to give back to what you are already doing for the work that you are working. In your name we pray. Amen.